So every year, parents in schools around the country have a similar drama. Whether it's going into kindy or big school or high school, or you finally kicked the kids out of the house and they're at work or uni, the most uncomfortable day is the first day of sending kids to school. Photos should come up of my son. Uh, we have sent our boy Cal to three different schools. So we've done the sending to school for the first day three times. And we always go through the same emotions. In the Holdings house, there's often anxiety, sleepless nights, there's a bit of uncertainty, it's a bit overwhelming, and there's usually tears at the gate. And that's just from me. Um, <laughs> sending is hard to do because it's unpredictable. You don't know what's going to happen, uh, how they'll go on their own, and the task ahead of them is so overwhelming. And the disciples in John 20 face a similar feeling. Have a look at verse 21 with me. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. After saying this, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Spirit. A group of ten or so uneducated men are huddled together in fear and given the task of taking an unbelievable message to the world that Jesus, the Son of God, died, three days later rose again, and is now the Lord of all. It's an unbelievable message. And we face a similar task with a similar, with the same unbelievable message. Um, Mark, can we go ahead to the Richard Dawkins quote? This is what Richard Dawkins says about faith. Faith is belief without evidence and reason. Coincidentally, that's also the definition of delusion. I don't, say, I don't share Richard Dawkins' uh, quote to start a mudslinging match, but rather because this sentiment is shared by many people in this world today. So as disciples of Jesus today, as we are sent out into our workplaces, our soccer teams, our friends, our family, with the life-saving message of Jesus, how will people receive such a message? How will people believe this unbelievable message that the Son of God died, rose again, and is now Lord of all? Well, that's what we'll look at today in John chapter 20. Uh, so Jesus gives uh, them three things, uh, his disciples. First, he speaks about confidence. Have a look at verse 19 with me. When it was evening on that first day of the week, the disciples were gathered together with the doors locked because they feared the Jews. Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. Having said this, he showed them his hands and his side, so the disciples rejoiced when they saw the Lord. Last week finished with Mary telling the disciples, verse 18, I have seen the Lord, confirming that yes, Jesus died, the tomb is empty, and he has risen. He's risen indeed. <laughs> Our scene today starts that same evening. In John 18, we saw that as Jesus is arrested, the disciples flee. They fail Jesus. And now they're in fear. Because the people who executed Jesus could come and arrest them. But the resurrected Jesus doesn't abandon his disciples. In an act of grace, he miraculously appears to them. And he does so in physical form. 
So last week, we saw that Mary clung to the resurrected Jesus. In verse 20, Jesus shows the disciples his hands and his side. Verse 22, Jesus breathes on his disciples. Verse 27, Thomas um, is invited to touch his wounds, his hand and his side. It sounds a bit gross. It's clear that this is the same Jesus that died on the cross. And it's clear that this is a physical resurrection. Now, we could speculate about Jesus' body. I mean, how does our physical body flow through walls? Or, or even about our own bodies in the new creations. Will we have wounds or tattoos in heaven? I don't know. But that's not the point. Jesus tells us what the point is. Verse 19, peace be with you. In fact, he says that phrase three times. Did you notice that? At one level, peace be with you, or, um, or what would be pronounced as shalom, is the standard everyday greeting for Jewish people. But it's also a loaded term. You see, it's a lot more than just saying g'day or mate. Uh, on a deeper level, this peace, this shalom, is the covenantal peace that comes from living in a perfect relationship with God when God brings his kingdom in full. And so Jesus, after not seeing his disciples for three days, he reminds them of all that his death and resurrection has achieved for them. As the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, he has washed them clean through his sin-bearing death. On the cross he said, it is finished. And in his resurrection, he proves to the disciples that it worked. You see, without the resurrection, there is no peace with God. Without the resurrection, there is no gospel to preach. And without the resurrection, God cannot give us this peace. So the assurance of Jesus' identity and the greeting of peace turns the disciples' fear into joy because it's unmistakable proof that Jesus is alive. You see, Jesus wants his disciples to have confidence in the resurrection because our faith in Jesus is built on facts. Faith built on facts. If we go back to that Richard Dawkins quote, um, remember he famously said, faith in belief is belief without evidence and reason? Some will say that Christianity is just science fiction. Others will say that faith is what you have when you don't have evidence. But if the foundation of the gospel is eyewitness accounts, people who saw and talked and even touched the resurrected Jesus, faith is not belief without evidence. Faith is built on facts. Richard Dawkins is wrong. Those who have faith are those who have looked at the evidence and based their belief on what the evidence shows to be true, which means you can only talk about Christianity being a delusion if you turn your back on the evidence. You can only talk about Christianity being false if you turn your back on the facts, which gives us confidence today. Friends, we can be confident that Jesus rose from the dead. We can be confident that the gospel we hear preached is true. We can be confident that a faith based on this gospel leads to eternal life. Now, if we come back to the passage, Jesus is not merely focused on the defeat of sin, also what happens next. Have a look at verse 21. This is the commission, our second point. 
Verse 21, Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. After saying this, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. They are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. Jesus has not merely come in his resurrection to assure the disciples of his conquest of death and the triumph of his kingdom. He's also come to instruct the disciples and to prepare them for what lies ahead. And in these three verses, you probably have a whole bunch of questions. You know, things like, did Jesus have coffee breath? Uh, what does he mean when he says, I'm sending you? Can we actually forgive sins? Um, we won't look at all of those questions, but for the sake of time and clarity, I've summed it up in three things. First, Jesus gives us the purpose of his mission. When Jesus says, as the Father has sent me, I also send you, he is commissioning them to continue his work on earth. But John 3.16 will come up beside me. It says, Jesus said, for God so loved the world in this way, he gave his one and only Son, and so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Why did the Father send the Son? To win salvation on the cross, so that people may believe in him. Why does the Son send the disciples? Well, not to win salvation. That is something that we cannot do. He gives, us, gives the disciples the task to preach the message of salvation, to preach the gospel, so that other people may believe and have eternal life. As eyewitnesses of Jesus, their task is to preach, to proclaim, to announce that Jesus died and is alive and is now Lord of all. And that salvation from sin, uh, salvation has come, and sins can be given through faith in the Lord, sins can be forgiven through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. But he doesn't leave them alone in this task. Because second thing, Jesus gives them power for this mission. He gives them a purpose and then gives them a power. At verse 22, Jesus breathes on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. Um, in Don Carson's commentary on John's Gospel, he spent about six pages outlining the different interpretations of this one verse. And since you all want to get to dinner tonight, we won't go through them. But the primary question here is, when do the apostles receive the Spirit? Friends, if you're familiar with the New Testament, you would know that in Acts chapter 2, God pours out his Spirit. And this is not just a phenomenon restricted to the book of Acts, but a key moment in God's salvation plan. As God pours out his spirit on his people, it's an announcement that all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Which means when Jesus breathes on his disciples here, God is not pouring out his spirit. It's a symbolic drama, an enacted parable, reminding the disciples that Jesus will send the spirit. But we see the same kind of enacted parable in the Lord's Supper. Jesus says, the bread and the wine is his body and his blood. We see it when Jesus washes the disciples' feet. He says, unless I wash you, you cannot be clean. 
And so this is a reminder that Jesus will send the Spirit and that the Spirit is at work for them in that moment. Which means if they preach the Gospel, the Spirit will give them courage to speak. As they preach the Gospel, the Spirit will remind them of the words of Jesus. And as they preach, the Spirit will convict other people's hearts of sin, convict them of the coming judgment, and the need to be made right through Jesus Christ. So if the purpose of the mission is to preach this message of forgiveness, and the power that God gives is his spirit to convict people to believe, then verse 23 is speaking about the confidence that they can have that people will be forgiven of their sin when they hear the gospel. You see, Jesus is not saying that that they can withhold forgiveness from anyone. And Jesus is not saying that humans have the power to absolve sin and forgive sin. Not at all. Jesus is speaking about the sufficiency of the gospel message. That if the gospel is preached and the spirit is at work, then you can be confident that those who believe have their sins forgiven. You can be so confident that you can actually encourage someone. Friend, today your sin has been forgiven. Not because of anything that I have done, not because of anything that you have done, but because God has forgiven us of our sins through Jesus Christ. So the power of the Spirit means that the disciples can trust that this unbelievable message of the death and resurrection of Jesus will be believed. I mean, it's a crazy message, let's be honest. That a man in first century Israel died, and three days later he rose again. And because of his death on the cross and the shedding of his blood, he paid for our sin. And that in his resurrection, he declared to the world that he defeated sin and death and now rules today at the right hand of the Father. That's an unbelievable message. And people only come to believe in that message through the power of the Spirit. And not only does this give us confidence, but also our own testimony should remind us of this as well. Because, friends, how do you believe in this unbelievable message? How have you come to put your faith in Jesus? Well, someone told you the gospel. Someone shared the good news of Jesus with you. And God's Spirit convicted your heart of your sin and your need to be made right with God. So you, if you believe in Jesus Christ, are a walking example that this unbelievable message can be believed and will be believed, which gives us confidence that as we share with people today, as we share the good news of Jesus with people, God's Spirit is at work and people will believe. Uh, So Jesus gives us confidence, the gospel is based on facts. He gives a commission to his disciples to share the gospel, empowered by the Spirit. And last, uh, we see an example of where convictions change. This is our third point. Um, Out of verse 24. Now Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said, 
unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger in where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. I love Thomas. He appears four times in John's Gospel and he's a bit of a pragmatist. He's a plain-speaking guy. You don't need to guess what he's thinking because he just wants, he just tells you. He just wants to get the job done. And we see the same thing here. He hears this unbelievable message. He wants some evidence. He just wants to get the job done. So he says, well, show me Jesus. And in chapter 20 today, Thomas is a gift. He's a gift to the world and he's a gift to the church. Uh, he's a gift because he dispels some objections to the resurrection. See, some people would say that Jesus didn't rise from the dead because the disciples were gullible or uneducated or unscientific. Some people will say that Jesus didn't rise from the dead because this was just a shared illusion, an idea that they invented or even just positive thinking. Uh, friends, if anyone tells you that, then take them to John chapter 20 and show them the disciple Thomas. Because Thomas is a gift. Because all humanity shares a common need with Thomas to wrestle with the facts, to come up with an informed decision to base our faith on. And so I'm so grateful for Thomas. He's a gift. He's a gift to this world, and he's a gift to believers like you and I when we go through doubts. He's a gift, but he's also guilty. Have a look at verse 27. A week later, his disciples were indoors again, and Thomas was with them. Even though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and look at my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Don't be faithless, but believe. I don't know how you felt when you read those words of Jesus. They're very strong, aren't they? Maybe you feel that Jesus is right to use such strong language, that Thomas should have just blindly accepted the resurrection. Or maybe you think that Jesus is too harsh with Thomas. You know, Thomas is in the right. He's just being scientific. Uh, he demanded this evidence. He demanded empirical evidence, and uh, he wanted to see Jesus for himself. Interestingly, Jesus doesn't agree with either of those positions. You see, Thomas is not guilty for his questions. He's not guilty for his doubts. He's not guilty for needing to wrestle with the truth. He's guilty because when faced with the evidence, the eyewitness accounts, he refused to believe. This is significant. Because, friends, you and I and the people of this world are held to that same standard. We are held to trust in these accounts of eyewitnesses. Thomas is a gift. He's guilty, but Jesus still shows him grace. He offers him the things that he wanted. The evidence that he desired in this special gift, he gives them to him. And Thomas responds in an instant. Verse 28, my Lord and my God. The greatest skeptic of all of history makes the greatest declaration of all of history. That Jesus is Lord and God. Uh, it's, it's powerful that this resurrected Jesus is Lord of heaven and earth. It's personal. 
He says, Jesus, you are my Lord and you are my God. And Thomas is aligning himself through faith in Jesus. And Jesus doesn't correct him. Jesus doesn't reject him. Jesus welcomes him. And what's interesting is that Jesus uses this episode with Thomas as a lesson. Have a look at verse 29. Jesus said, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen, yet believe. What does Jesus mean by this? Does he mean that in the future he hopes that people will take a leap in the dark? No. Does he mean that he hopes that people will believe with no evidence whatsoever? No. Is he agreeing with Richard Dawkins and saying that faith is a delusion and you just go with the flow? Not at all. You see, blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. Their faith is not based on what our faith is not based on what we have seen, but on what the disciples have seen in their eyewitness evidence. So while we do not believe in the things that we have seen, we trust in their testimony and the ones that Jesus has entrusted Himself to. Which means. Uh, we can have confidence that belief in their testimony leads to eternal life. There's this new phenomenon gaining popularity recently. I don't know if you've heard of it. It's called buying things sight unseen. So with kind of a mix of covert and travel re restrictions, people have been dog people have been buying dogs without actually seeing the dogs before. People have been buying cars with actually without seeing the cars. And people have even been buying houses, like a house, without seeing it before, which is what my wife and I did when we moved to Orange. <laughs> so, we found a couple of houses that we liked to look at. We liked, found one that was, we really liked the look of in particular, and then we found someone that we thought we could trust, a guy called Greg Blanche. Um, and so we sent him along. And I had a list of things that he had to do, right, to test out the house. So, um, so he had to test the heating, the central heating, because I'm a sook when it comes to the cold. I hope you already know that. Um, I made him bounce in the living room to test the floorboards, and he did it. He, he had me on FaceTime to prove that he was bouncing. <laughs> uh, I made him test the window sills to kind of make sure that none of the cold seeped in. He, he tested the showers for me to make sure that they didn't leak. Uh, he, Looked at, kind of got down on the ground and looked at the quality of the carpet and kind of gave me a rating out of five of what he thought about it. Uh, and so, based on his evidence, we bought the house. Now, you might think I'm crazy. You might think Greg is crazy. <laughs> We're kind of both a bit crazy. You wouldn't trust to buy a house sight unseen, and neither would I. But I trusted in the evidence that I was given from an eyewitness. And that's the same kind of faith that Jesus calls us to have in the resurrection of Jesus. Uh, in the last couple of verses, we see this in verse 30. Have a look at verse 30. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples that are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Friends, who are these verses written to? 
Aaron to you and to me. John, at the end of his gospel, he breaks the fourth wall and talks to his audience. He tells us why he has written the gospel. So that we would trust the eyewitness accounts and believe that Jesus is the Son of God. It's not a delusion. It's not a leap in the dark. But it's believing the eyewitness accounts that, God has, that Jesus has given us in his disciples. And so this means that as, God, as we hear the gospel and the eyewitness accounts, and God's Spirit works in our life, that he will bring faith from us so that we may believe. So what does this mean for us today? Well, I think firstly, it means that when we encounter people who hold the same ideas as Richard Dawkins, we graciously and lovingly disagree with them. And we tell them, I understand that you may think that faith is a leap in the dark, but biblical faith is based on evidence. So we need to keep that in mind. It also sharpens our thoughts about what it means to be sent by Jesus and on mission for him. You see, it's so easy to take the actions of Jesus and kind of warp them into, um, into reflecting our own kind of mission that we would like to see. So Jesus, you know, um, he fed the sick. Sorry, he, felt he fed the hungry, he healed the lame, he cared for the poor. Um, we can fall into the trap of thinking that Jesus sends his disciples to bring about social change, like food banks and homeless shelters. Some might say Jesus came with all authority and performed signs and wonders, therefore Jesus is sending the disciples to perform miracles and bring large-scale revival. Others might even say that Jesus healed the sick and brought justice to the oppressed. Therefore, the disciples and us today are to run free health clinics and advocacy groups. Now, most of these things are very good things. Food banks are good. Evangelism is good. Advocacy groups are good. But the problem is, is these focus on earthly needs. And today, in God's Word, Jesus reminds us that the eternal need is the most important. The Father sends the Son so that people may be saved. Jesus sends his disciples to hear the message of salvation. And as disciples today, he calls us to do the same. At the beginning, I mentioned my boy and the, uh, the kind of the emotions that we go through when we send him off to school. Feeling like he's unprepared and unequipped. Friends, today in the Bible we see that as disciples of Jesus, we are not unprepared. We are not unequipped. We have a mission. We have a purpose to share the good news of Jesus with us and the power of God's Spirit so that when we share that message, people will believe. How about I pray that God will help us to do that? Heavenly Father and gracious God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the eyewitness testimonies to the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We thank you for your son who paid the penalty for sin that we could not pay. And we thank you for the power of your spirit that convicts people to believe. And so, Heavenly Father, by that same spirit, I pray that you would give us courage, that you would give us words to say, that you would give us opportunities to share the hope that we have in Jesus Christ 
Not so that we may build a bigger kingdom on earth, but so that you may continue to build your kingdom and bring more people to eternal life. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.